0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good Thursday evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us right here in the Situation Room on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Lots to get to today. There was a, a ton of research, a ton of digging that went into this particular episode. It's part of the reason that we're a little behind. Tonight, but uh, rest assured that the reason that we were doing that was specifically because there was some really intensive research. We got a lot of really good content tonight, so I'm really looking forward to this show. Let's go ahead and start, as we always have since the beginning of this pandemic, with the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there the numbers for the Wuhan coronavirus. We currently stand at 11,101 cases which is a significant uptick. I mean, it's it's not at all insignificant. We're going to talk about that in just a second. 144,422 tests have been administered, 473 COVID-19 deaths, and then 1,364 hospitalizations statewide. So there's a lot of data to look at here. This is a pretty bad day compared to the days that we're accustomed to having, so just looking at the way that this whole thing stacked up, looking at our hospitalizations, looking at the total confirmed cases, you remember that I said that we might, and I said might because it didn't look like it was by any means a sure thing, that we might pass 11,000 by Friday or Saturday, and we wound up passing it on Thursday. Uh, That's pretty significant. The fact that it it amped up as quickly as it did, and you can see that as well on this list because there are 484 new cases for the coronavirus. That makes it the second biggest day that we've ever had in new cases in a single day since we've been tracking it. You can see that here on this graph where we're looking at the new cases that are confirmed in the state of Alabama per day. You can see that it is neck and neck with the day that we had and i believe the day that we've had the most is 487 and you can see there you can't even discern the difference on that chart just going by your eyes and so 484 that's a lot in a single day we've tied for the or we we've come close to tying we haven't quite tied it's still the second biggest day but we've come very close to tying the biggest day for new cases that we've ever had and Considering that we're only six, we're only a few behind that, I mean that, that's a big deal. But here's the thing that I do want to offer as a part of the explanation and, and also something to deliver you a little bit of hope. That one trend that we have seen, and I was actually talking about a buddy of mine that lives in Sand Rock, Alabama, very close to the Georgia border. In fact, his dad works in Georgia, and one of the things that we were discussing is that Georgia's numbers had actually gone down. Now, granted, it was partly my fault. I worded it inconclusively. Uh, I was talking about how Georgia saw an increase in their numbers after they went ahead and ended the shutdown and that uh, that that was something that was to be expected. He argued, of course, that they've gone down, which if you're looking at the seven-day averages overall, they have. And so he wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong. We were just kind of talking past one another. Uh, but what he did show in, in one of the graphs that he shared with me is that that spike did indeed happen because you'll remember that the shutdown was called off on the 28th. Well, what happened in the like two or three days after the 28th, you saw a pretty substantial spike in cases and then it declined. And so what could be happening here is, and Alabama has always been a few days behind Georgia on this thing, because Georgia is, of course, it has a coastline. More people come in there through a port of entry to the United States, like they they have a really big port of entry in Atlanta, that kind of thing. And so it's to be expected that our neighbors to the east are a little bit ahead of us on this thing, just because of some of the parameters that surround how georgia would be dealing with this thing and by the way this idea that when you open the state up you see sort of a a bump in numbers followed by a decline is something that the united states itself is actually seeing on a grander level if you'll go ahead and check out this chart and these are the new coronavirus cases these are the new cases nationwide you'll notice that these things are starting to come kind of in waves, which actually doesn't look much different from our Alabama new cases chart. Our, our chart has been more or less indicative of what you're seeing overall. And you'll notice that in, it's happening in waves of the past about two-ish weeks, two and a half weeks, where some states will start opening up, people start moving around a little bit more, and then you'll see a spike in cases followed by a decline. And so that seems to be the pattern that we can look at and kind of follow is that uh, around this uh, about the time, because remember just about every state has opened up on a Monday, Alabama also opened on a Monday, this past Monday, there's still restrictions in place just like there are in, in virtually every other state that has loosened their restrictions on the stay at home orders. But the point is we're seeing something that is, is sort of consistent with what's going on in the United States as a whole, what happened in Georgia, which, I mean, has is very similar to us culturally, geographically, geopolitically. In just about every rubric, Georgia is a pretty good thing to compare Alabama to, and they saw this same thing happen. It shouldn't be surprising to anybody. I'm not saying we shouldn't be worried about it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep an eye on it. I'm just saying, let's keep in mind... That this isn't something that's wildly out of the norm, and if history has been any teacher, based on other places similar to Alabama, like Georgia, we're going to see that increase, which we probably just saw today, followed by a decline. That's speculation, but we'll definitely keep our eyes on it, and we'll definitely tell you whether or not that does come to pass or not right here on Tactics. And if you'll look at this graph as well, because these are the new tests in the state of Alabama, you'll see that there's also a significant uptick in testing. Now, what we have here is something of a chicken or an egg scenario, because it seems unlikely, because it would be very easy to say, see, we have an increase in testing, and we also have an increase in cases. And so obviously what happened is, We had an increase in cases, or sorry, we had an increase in those tests, which indicated that there were more cases out there. I'm not saying that that's not part of it. I think that that's probably a contributing factor, but you have a chicken or an egg scenario here because you have to ask yourself the question, well, did more people get out, move around, get infected, start feeling a little iffy, and then go in to get the test? And that's the reason we had the increase in tests. Or did we have an increase in tests, which led to an increase in cases of people that didn't necessarily feel bad, but just decided just for the heck of it for kicks and giggles to go in and get a test? Actually, I prefer the first one. And I don't say that because I want people to be sick. I prefer the first one because it means we're not wasting resources, that people are actually being prudent. They're only going in and getting tested because theoretically, if it were the tests that were driving this thing as opposed to people actually feeling sick, if it were the tests that were driving this thing and a whole bunch of the new cases that we were getting, asymptomatic cases, then, first of all, that, that means that there's probably a lot of tests going to waste and being used on people that don't really need to be tested right now. Uh, and second of all, that just seems unlikely. That seems inconsistent with what we've seen over the past couple of months. That seems inconsistent with what we know about just human nature. And it just seems to me far more likely that you're probably getting some of scenario two, but it's probably mostly scenario one. It's mostly people that are moving around, coming in contact with people, then starting to feel a little sick, like, oh gosh, maybe I actually do have the coronavirus, and then going out and getting tested, and then it reveals that they do. It seems to me that it is the, the cases driving the test, as opposed to the test driving the cases. But again, that is just speculation, and unfortunately, there's really no way to sort through that just looking at the data. So uh, are the results getting faster? Yeah, probably. I'm not saying that we're not seeing some cases of the test being, turnaround being so fast that we're actually seeing more people get their test results back quicker. And that's the reason that we can see a test that's, that's not necessarily creating a lag that you see a whole bunch of tests one day. And then two days later, like we used to see that you'd see an increase in cases It could be, at least partially, that our testing is getting better, our testing is getting faster, and because it's getting faster, we're getting those results practically right after having the test administered. That may be a big contributing factor to that, and I don't want to discount that either. But here's the thing to remember as well. Even with the big uptick in new cases, our testing rate is still pretty darn low. The rate of positive tests we are getting for the tests that we administer is 7.69 which is significantly less almost half of the national average of 15%. And if it's basically half, well then that probably means that we're not having people just waiting till they basically already know that they have it and then going in and getting the test. We're probably getting a pretty good blend. I mean, if if you're thinking about more than 90% of these people are going in to get tested, and finding out that they do not have the virus, that very much lends you to believe that we don't have a dearth of testing, and people aren't just like waiting until they basically absolutely know that they have it or are feeling pretty awful to get this testing. That doesn't seem to be the case. It seems as though we we have we have very robust testing, and the people that do need to be tested are getting tested. That we're not having a shortage or something like that. So that's what the numbers lead me. To believe, And we'll go ahead and look at something that's a little bit more objective, the hospitalizations in the state of Alabama. Now, if you'll look at the tail end of that, you'll see and, and notice correctly that there is also an uptick in hospitalizations. And again, this is a pretty bad day for Alabama all the way around when you look at the raw numbers and when you look at how they compare to what we've come to sort of understand as being the average But the thing is, as bad as that is, and it is, and I don't want to discount that or sugarcoat it, it's nowhere near the levels that it's actually going to cause problems. We were looking at stats the other day that shows that Alabama is not just below, but well below the rate at which they would start running out of hospital beds or ventilators. Our hospitals are actually largely empty. I have a buddy that works at a hospital up in Huntsville, and and based on what I've heard through the grapevine from her, that the hospital's pretty much empty. Uh, I do have some friends in healthcare and in other sectors that haven't really had that problem as much because when it comes to, you know, uh, some of of them are basically, they handle essential procedures regardless, and those really haven't stopped because of the coronavirus. So that, they're they're not a great gauge of it, but they're still letting me know that the hospitals are mostly empty. We saw that report from UAB that they were only at about 60% capacity at one point, so the idea that we are we're just nowhere near the level that we would have to be of hospitalizations from this virus to be able to actually create some kind of problem with our healthcare system that's just not happening as of yet so hopefully it remains that way and then finally let's take a quick look at coronavirus deaths so if you look at this graph right here you'll see again We're actually down a little bit from a couple days ago. A little higher than yesterday, a little lower than the day before. We're kind of in that comfortable groove, which I know is a very odd thing to say, and it even sounds weird, me saying it, when you're talking about people dying. I'm just looking at it objectively as a set of numbers, not individual lives. Of course, that is what's underlying the statistic. But you're not seeing much change in the death rate, and that's to be expected as well. Because, keep in mind, the death rate is a lagging statistic. And so if we're having a big spike today, we're probably not going to see those deaths actually pop up in the statistics for another week or so. And hopefully we don't see them pop up at all. That'd be great. That would mean that the treatments that we're doing and the way that we're able to handle this is actually improving a great deal. But you don't see a a whole lot of difference in the death rate today versus from a couple of days ago, and that's probably because the new test and the new cases that we have that just dropped today, they're probably not going to going to wind up in a situation where they could find it to be fatal, at least for a while. And so it looks like we're actually, even though no death is, is good and, and one death from this thing is one too many, Ultimately, it's kind of like the hospitalization thing. That It's certainly unfortunate that we're having that, but it's also not something that is indicative of a larger problem. So basically, the, the best way that I can sort of sum all that up is we're starting to get that spike that we've seen in other states and in the nation overall when people start opening up. It looks like we're starting to get that little spike, not an exponential spike, just a numeric spike. And if history is any teacher, and if places like Georgia and Tennessee are any teacher, we're going to see those numbers start dropping over the next few days once it becomes a less novel thing to get out and about a little bit more. Not sure exactly how that's going to look, but we'll keep an eye on it nonetheless. And also, one thing that I wanted to bring up as well, there's actually new data from a New York Times article on how much people are traveling and where. And the way that they do this is actually really interesting and also kind of terrifying because the way that they're doing it is they are tracing cell phones. Now, how is the New York Times tracing cell phones and looking at cell phone data? I don't know. Uh, Maybe they got it from Verizon or not sure. They don't actually reveal that in the article. But nonetheless, that's how they're doing it, and they're just taking a broad look at how people are traveling and, and using cell phone data to gather that together and take a look at exactly how much people are traveling to and from their home, that kind of thing. And here's the interesting thing that they found. They found that all 50 states, every single one, even Alaska and Hawaii, all 50 states, they all reached peak quarantining before their state order to stay-at-home order. That's incredible. It didn't matter whether you were a state that had a very early stay-at-home warning that was one of the first, uh, places like Michigan and places like New York, New Jersey, or you had a state, uh, well, actually, I think one of the earliest was Washington, wasn't it? Or you had a state that never issued a stay-at-home order like South Dakota. Doesn't matter. They all reached peak... Sheltering in place, peak quarantining, in other words, a dearth of traveling, all of them, before those orders were given down. And then when you look at the data of when people started moving around and getting out and about a little bit more, so far, and not every state has lifted its stay-at-home orders, so some of the data is still kind of incomplete, but we, we do know which ones have them still in place they started moving around again before the states lifted those orders or lifted those restrictions. Which tells you what? That as a general rule, people are going to do what they want to do. And this is one thing that I actually think is a good thing. I actually like this about America. Because what you see going on here is people taking the lead, not the government that basically the government is following the pattern of the people. States that people started moving out and about and said that we refuse to stay restricted or quarantined at home anymore, those state governments, as a general rule, followed that suit. And they also followed when people decided we need to self-quarantine to make sure that we're not getting this thing or not spreading it around. The people make the decisions, not the government. And that's a very good thing. That's actually something that I think ought to be applauded. And probably part of the reason that there has been zero correlation between the shelter-in-place orders and new cases or deaths is this. That's probably why you're not seeing any correlation is because people are going to do what they're going to do. I made this case and you can look back. I don't know if it's a daily dose of stupid or not, but I know I had an individual video from, I don't know, like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, which feels like eight years ago at this point because uh, of how t- slowly time has moved since this thing started. But it was a few months ago, and I believe the title of it was The Stay-at-Home Orders Don't Help. And it was, man, it, it may have been even further, it may have even been longer ago than I thought, because I believe I did that right before Alabama did their stay-at-home orders. And when you uh, went through the the statistics, it showed that there was zero correlation between a stay-at-home order and a decrease in COVID-19 deaths or new cases for the coronavirus, there was no correlation whatsoever. This kind of explains why. Because if more people are staying at home, more people are sheltering in place, of course you're going to have less deaths and less new cases. But the stay-at-home orders were not the things that were dictating whether or not people actually did it or not. That's the difference the people made the decisions on their own whether or not it was safe to go out or not the government can can try to do that and they can give suggestions but ultimately even when they make it into a state home order even when they make it a law doesn't seem to really have much effect on what the american people do and the thing is politicians They often think of themselves as controlling society, that they're up there in the controls with the control room. And if they just pull this lever and adjust this dial and hand down laws in this particular way, which would be the way that they see themselves as controlling society, that they can basically change human nature and change human behavior. You can't. I hate to tell you. Whether you're President Trump or Governor Ivy or just a, a mayor or a sheriff of a small town, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You cannot alter human behavior. I, I mean, it's just this is the way that it is, especially in America. That's especially true here. I think it's true everywhere because human nature really doesn't change no matter where you are. But ultimately, especially because of our culture, because of the way that we view government, especially in America, government just can't alter people's behavior all that much. And that's a good thing. I think it's actually great. And and when you're talking about a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, isn't that what we're talking about? That people make decisions and government is the one that follows our lead, not the other way around? Well, I've always understood that to be exactly what we're talking about there. And speaking of people making their own decisions and making good decisions, I want to applaud somebody that I honestly had no idea they existed because even though I do cover a lot of state politics, they've kind of been on the back burner, and especially when you're talking about a congressional race, I tend to not pay attention to the Democrats unless they're in my district just because, let's be honest, in ruby red Alabama, the odds that a Democrat is going to somehow wind up looking up and and getting into a congressional seat is practically none unless you happen to be from Selma. Uh, but um, yeah, talking about you, Terry Collins. Uh, or if you happen to be in a state-wide race, but you're running against Judge Roy Moore. There you go, Doug Jones. So, but this lady, I want to give her insane levels of kudos. I have no idea what her politics are. I know she's running as a Democrat, so I'm guessing probably not the same as mine. Doesn't matter. This is a great story. I really want to bring it to you and I want to give her credit for it. There is an Alabama congressional candidate from District 1 uh, running for the Democrat side who donated a kidney to a stranger in the middle of this pandemic. Her name is Kayani, I believe that's the way to pronounce it, Kayani Gardner, and she donated her kidney to a guy named Tyson Bell who is another Alabamian, interestingly enough, and Never met the guy. She had just been on a donor list, has been for a couple of years now. And this poor guy, he's been waiting for a kidney for the past two and a half years. He has polycystic kidney disease, which apparently is is bad enough that you actually have to replace the kidney. I'm not a doctor. I don't know a whole lot about this stuff. But I mean, just good on her. And, And not only did she go out of her way and give of herself in the most literal way you can imagine. But she did so specifically at a time where it was inconvenient. It was inconvenient because she's currently running a campaign and trying to get elected, which is admirable that she was willing to do that, that she was willing to say, you know what, this is just more important, even though it's going to take away from me running for Congress, I'm going to go ahead and take myself out of commission for a few days to do this you know, maybe she doesn't have much chance to win. And I understand that she is a Democrat running in Alabama and and there's not much chance that she's going to wind up beating whoever the Republican candidate is, but you know, props to her anyway, that was a totally selfless thing to do, especially when you put it in that context. And so I just wanted to give her major props for that. It takes a great deal of selflessness and moral character to be able to do something like that for a stranger, but especially when you're specifically putting your career on hold to do so at a very critical time, and you're saying, no, I don't care, this is more important. So props to you, Mrs. Gardner. I I cannot praise you highly enough for that. I just wanted to give this feel-good story to the audience, and especially when you consider she not only had the inconvenience of it being during her campaign, but also during the coronavirus, where she had to, to be able to give this kidney self-isolate herself for 14 days which I imagine made it even harder for her to continue to run her campaign and of course she was tested for the virus before she entered surgery man I just got to say like that that takes an amazing amount of character and and I just really admire you for doing that don't know how you would stand against me politically I don't know if we would line up on very much but that doesn't matter just humans helping other humans out that's a feel-good story for the day there was a, there's a bit of contention and some confusion on where this virus is really hitting people hard. So there are two popular narratives that the left has really been pushing over the past few days. And the funny thing is they have these two different narratives and they wind up conflicting with one another. And I'll explain that a little bit later, but the newest one that they've come out with is basically It's hitting Trump voters because those are the ones that are going out and they're moving around and they're not listening to the doctors. They're not sheltering in place. And so really, Trump country is the one that's getting hit really hard recently. And this was a popular talking point on Georgia and Florida. You remember that we were actually talking about that just a, a few minutes ago, that when Georgia and Florida, especially because Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis, who were the governors there, have been very outspoken, very vocal Trump supporters. When they did that, and when they opened up, even despite President Trump actually bashing Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, for doing so, that when that took place, everybody on the left was predicting that Georgia and Florida would become the new New York, that basically everything was going to go down the crapper, everything was going to hit the fan immediately afterward, and here we are, about two and a half weeks afterward, which, by the way, the incubation period of this virus is about two weeks. And uh, their hospitalizations, down. Their total new cases, their seven-day average, down. Opposite has actually happened. They opened up and they're doing better. Now, I don't think they're doing better specifically because they opened up. I think they're actually doing so in spite of that. And I think the fact that they are both states that have high levels of heat and humidity. They're southern states. That plays a pretty big role. I think the fact that large portions of the state are very sparsely populated because, yeah, you've got Atlanta and Miami, but let's be honest, pretty much everything outside of that, with the exception of some of the mid-population mid, mid uh, population cities, like you know your Savannas and your Jacksonvilles and that kind of thing, Pensacolas, I mean, it's basically a southern state everywhere except for those big major metropolitan areas like Atlanta and Miami and and St. Petersburg, Tampa area, that kind of thing. And so I think that that's playing a much larger role in this anyway. And they said, yeah, the way that we're looking at it, our state is probably okay to open up. And they were right. And so that one completely fell apart, but they're still trying to figure out a way to pin this on Trump voters and try to make it out as though Trump voters are the ones that are spreading this. It really is incredible. And and this talking point gained new momentum, even though the narrative in Florida and Georgia fell apart with a new leaked White House report. And, and what this report basically says uh, is that there are certain areas in the heartland, certain rural areas that are seeing an uptick in cases, which is really not surprising, but listen to the way that they spin it. This one's via NBC News. Alabama, ah, first mentioned there, Alabama, Kentucky, Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, and Tennessee, for example, have no stay-at-home orders according to the task force map. In other states where restrictions are being put in place or repealed at the local level, some counties are expecting surges. Dallas and Fort Bend counties in Texas where decisions are made locally, are on a locations watch list because they have rec- they have increases in numbers of cases of 116.8% and 64.8% respectively. Okay, so there's a couple things that you really need to be made aware of here. First of all, uh, when you're looking at this, Of course, when you start repealing those orders, and again, I say this because what you're actually seeing is that the government is following, somewhat lagging behind the people. The people are getting out, they're moving around. Well, of course, that is going to increase your rate of new cases. It is going to increase your rate of uh, pretty much everything else on this. And so that really shouldn't be something that comes as a surprise. And so this is more of a, well, yeah, duh moment that some of these rural counties, especially ones that have been mostly secluded this whole time, are going to be seeing those increases. Uh, He... uh, uh, Sorry about that. I lost my place there. Uh, But here's the thing. In the states that saw that surge early, as we were just talking about, that surge was quickly followed by a decline. And so that's the thing that they're kind of leaving out here. And they're not really explaining is so that they're talking about these surges happening directly after the rules or the restrictions or the laws are repealed, but they're not talking about in other places that we've already seen this happen. What you saw immediately following that was a decline. And another thing that you really need to to be aware of is they're trying to make it sound like it's it's primarily Trump voters that are spreading this because of the locations and, and it being in rural areas. And of course, your rural areas tend to go more Republican and certainly did for Trump in the last 2020. But if you adjust for population and if you look at the statistics just from the other day, because I don't want to just take general numbers because then, of course, the obvious counter is, well, yeah, you're looking at the overall picture, but this report deals specifically with what's been happening recently. So what I did was because the only time period that I could find consistent numbers of and a consistent... Um, rubric to grade on, so we're comparing apples to apples, was two days ago. I actually compiled all of this on Tuesday night. And so if you look at that, if you look at the number of cases that happen in that time period, adjusted for population, of course, because since we're dealing with rural areas, we want to make sure if we're comparing them to major population centers that we're doing so on a fair even playing ground. The 10 states with the highest rate of new cases are all deep blue states except for two south dakota and iowa and south dakota has a very small population and by the way the governor of south dakota who never implemented any kind of stay-at-home order and, and to this day still doesn't have one uh their numbers are still relatively low they have one of the lowest death counts in the country even if you adjust for population and take into account their low population And again, those are the highest rate of new cases for that one day. But if eight out of the 10 states are deep blue states, primarily that have not lifted these orders, you can't make the case that those were Trump voters. And then when you compare them based on their new deaths per capita as of Tuesday, only three of the 10 worst are not deep blue states, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Michigan. In Mississippi and Louisiana, it's fair to call them Republican states, even though Louisiana leans blue sometimes in some specific areas. Uh, But Michigan's a purple state. It went for Donald Trump in 2016, but it went for Barack Obama four years before that. In fact, nobody was expecting Trump to even take Michigan because it's been a reliably blue state for a long time. It's just now getting some Republican influence. They wound up recalling a Republican governor and putting Whitmer in, who is currently in there now. And so at best you could say two out of the eight are Trump country. And so this idea that it's really the Trump voters that are causing these hot zones and they're the ones that are causing the increase, it's just laughable when you look at the recent data. It simply does not line up with the numbers. And this was by far my favorite of all of the headlines that were covering this. If you look at this article from Salon, you'll look at and see the headline here. Leaked White House data shows infection spiking more than 1,000% in rural areas that were backed by Trump. So again, they're trying to push this narrative that it's primarily Trump voters and people that supported Trump, people in those uh, secluded rural areas that are really seeing those spikes happen right now. This is part of that same article. I'll go ahead and read it. But a leaked Coronavirus Task Force report obtained by NBC News shows that some parts of the country, rural counties in Tennessee and Kansas, have seen cases balloon by more than 1,000% in a matter of one week, more than 400%. Dr. John Ross, a professor at Harvard Medical School, uh, pointed out that all but one of the top 10 counties saw the largest increases voted for President Trump in 2016. Now, here's the thing. If it's a study that specifically looks at rural counties... Of Course, there are going to be counties that voted for President Trump. Like I just said, that always happens. There are very, very few rural counties in the entire country that ever look uh, that ever wind up going Democrat, at least in recent history in the past like 30 years. And so, if it's a study specifically looking at rural counties, well, duh, all of the counties are going to be Trump country. That would be like, uh, this new outburst is happening in cities and. Uh, those cities all voted for Hillary Clinton. Well, well, yeah, they're they're cities. That's what you expect. But anyway, so th- they're very misleading on that. And another thing too that's very misleading. They're talking about a one thousand percent increase. Well, if you're talking about a county with a low population, first of all, those counties tend to get the virus slower because they're more sparsely populated anyway. You may recall that when we were monitoring it right here in Alabama, that we were looking at uh, some counties that had no cases for a very long time. Geneva County, a very rural county in South Alabama, for example, uh, we were like a month into this thing before they had one case. And I'm not talking about one death. I'm talking about one case. And when you look at, uh, I think it was Wilcox. Wilcox was the other one that held out for a really long time. Otaga uh, County. I remember that, I, I believe Montgomery was somewhere in the like 200, 300 range when Otaga County only had three or four. And so it, it's a big showy piece and a big headline that's going to grab you a lot of clicks by saying it's increasing a thousand percent and and 400 percent in in one county over the span of a week. But you do realize that increasing 400 percent would be going from one case to five cases in a week and in a thousand percent since the beginning of this that would be a county that went from one percent to 11 or sorry from one to 11 over the course of this thing now i'm not saying that's exactly the numbers or that's exactly what's happening i'm saying you could see that and you're like hey this podunk county out in the middle of nowhere went from having one case of coronavirus to 11 cases of coronavirus how can we spend this to make it sound more impactful? Let's say it increased by a thousand percent. Yeah, but really you still only have 10 guys that didn't have it beforehand. It's an incredibly misleading thing. And that's especially, it's especially easy to play with the numbers like that when you have a low population like you do in rural counties. And, and that's why it's so important to look at the recent stats and, and try to look at these things objectively instead of just throwing out red meat, or I guess in the left's case, tofu, for their audience there. Now here's the second narrative in all of this, and this one's just as wrong and just as filled with holes, but at least it is somewhat based in fact. The last one is basically the, them trying to make something up out of whole cloth uh, by, by fiddling with the numbers. This one is... It has some element of truth, but their conclusion is wrong. So your premise isn't completely ridiculous, but your conclusion didn't really match up with your premise. So the second narrative is the virus is killing more minorities because of racism. Now, is the virus having a bigger impact on minority communities? Yeah, absolutely. That's objective. I don't know of anybody on the right or left that disputes that. I have yet to hear anybody say, oh, they're saying it's affecting black people or Mexican people or Asian people or whatever, you know, throw in whatever nationality or race that you may want to. They'll say that, but it's not because of racism. And there's been no proof of this, yet it's a talking point the left continues to throw out there. And what's funny is it contradicts the first narrative. Because the first narrative that they've been trying to run with is it's primarily a bunch of crazy Trump voters that just refuse to social distance and stay at home that this thing is going to be impacting. And then they turn right around and say, well, actually it's, it's impacting minorities. Okay. You've got to pick one because I don't know if you've seen the demographics of people that voted for Trump broken up by race versus Hillary. I got to tell you, most of the minorities are on the Hillary Clinton side. And so if that's the case, you can't have it primarily impacting those two completely different communities and say that they're the ones that are getting really hammered by this thing at the same time. That doesn't make any sense. So their two narratives don't really even mesh, Uh, but it really is impacting minorities to a greater extent. That part is true. It's just that their conclusion doesn't, it isn't really based on anything because there are a number of factors, a large number actually of factors that could be a contributing reason why this thing is hitting minorities to a greater extent. And just to go over a few of them here, first of all, there's higher rates of things like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, smoking, all in minority communities. Now, smoking's not a big one. The only race that smokes more than white people are black people, and it's barely more. I mean, it's... it's, it's basically not a non-existent disparity. But if you're talking about things like heart issues, diabetes and obesity and and certain cancers, that certainly affects certain minority communities at a much greater rate than it does your white communities. There's also cultural differences. Typically your minorities tend to be a much closer knit group. They tend to value family more, which by the way, that's not a criticism. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing that you've got a lot of black families where they have, Two, three generations living in the same town where the kids can go visit grandma and grandpa pretty much anytime they want to. That's actually a good thing. I wish that the white community had more of that, but it's also something that's causing a, uh, a quicker spread of this thing. And it also causes issues with that. And, and you can see why that would be problematic in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you also have location because we were just talking about rural versus urban and how this thing is actually hitting urban communities at a much greater rate and and much more impactful rate. In in other words, it's affecting them more than it is in rural communities. Well, whites make up 79% of rural areas and make up only 44% of urban ones, which means that the minority communities are primarily in the urban population centers where people are being most affected by this disease. So, of course, they're going to be impacted more because that's where they are. And that's not the only factor. But let's be honest, it's a significant one. If you are where the virus is and where the virus is more easily spread, then of course the minorities are going to be more impacted by that. Another thing that needs to be talked about, and and this is one that the left will, will kind of talk about and harp on, and I think that it can be a factor, but it's certainly not the only factor. Socioeconomic factors, things like poverty, large percentage of essential workers. So, not only do you have higher rates of poverty, but you also have a higher rate of those people who tend to be disproportionately more affected by poverty. You also have those same minorities, those same groups of people, tend to have jobs that are considered essential. Things like working in a grocery store, working in a meatpacking plant. Uh, if you're looking at at agriculture, for example, there is a ridiculous disproportionate amount of Hispanic people working in those kinds of jobs, be they legal or illegal, that are having to to continue to go to work every day. And of course, that's going to cause a greater rate of infection amongst those particular minority groups. So there's a lot of these things. And another thing that it's an X factor, and I don't want to throw this out there and say that this is absolutely what's causing it, because I don't know, and nobody else does either at this point, it is also possible that the disease just simply affects certain races differently. There are lots of diseases that certain races are more susceptible to or more races are less susceptible to. For example, just off the top of my head, even though black people can get skin cancer and have gotten skin cancer, white people are far more likely to because we have less melanin in our skin, we have less protection from the sun. It's much more common for white people, for example, to get that specific kind of cancer. And so some diseases just for whatever reason affect other races differently. And so that may be a factor here. I don't know. Frankly, based on the data, it doesn't seem likely. But it's also not something that we can just ignore as a, possible, uh, as a possible factor that would play into this as well. But the real issue underlying all of this is that whenever the left sees any kind of disparity, they assume that it's racism. It's not. Not every time. A disparity can certainly be indicative of, a, of racism. But it doesn't necessitate it. Sometimes disparities are just disparities. For example, if you were to look at, uh, you know, something that had nothing to do with racism, you could still create a disparity. If you were to, for example, look at the, and I know that this is a goofy one, but, yeah, I mean, it's true. If you were to look at the portion of people that, that pick Sprite to drink, a lot of black people love Sprite. Not sure exactly why. I like Sprite fine. It's probably my second favorite of all of the drinks. Nothing's going to beat Dr. Pepper, though. I'm telling you that right now. Uh, but uh, but for whatever reason, they just really like Sprite. So if you looked at a chart, a graph of uh, a person's choice of cola based on their ethnicity, you would see a giant disparity. Is that because the makers of, of all the other drinks are racist? Well, no, it's just their preference. I don't know. It's cultural. It's They just tend to like the taste better. I don't know what it is. But you can't just assume that every single disparity is because of some kind of underlying racism. John Archibald in AL.com earlier was trying to make this exact same case, and he was saying that the reason that it's impacting these communities at a greater rate is because of years and years of systematic racism and What we should do is expand Medicaid because something, something, something racism. Therefore, we have to expand Medicaid. Okay, well, I I don't follow that logic at all. But basically, the case that he was making is that we haven't expanded Medicaid because of racism. I really don't understand that, especially when you consider that we have a, a pretty substantial black population in the state of Alabama. And... I mean, when it comes to Medicaid, there's probably a lot of them that are in favor of it. They tend to vote blue, but we haven't halted that because of racism. We've halted it because it's a bad idea and it would cost the state an awful lot of money. That's what it ultimately comes down to, especially with states that have heavy levels of poverty and people that are on Medicaid, like Alabama, it would be even more expensive for us than states that actually have lower rates of poverty. But that's the argument that he makes, and uh, one of the things that he was talking about there is that we're going to have a much rougher time of it because we haven't expanded Medicaid, and because Alabama hasn't expanded Medicaid, we in the other states that have not done so are going to have a much, much harder time with this pandemic, and this whole thing is a case study in why we should expand Medicaid, except there's not an ounce of truth to that either. In fact, if you go ahead and look at this list, these are states based on their rate of death uh, as a result of COVID-19. These are the states with the highest rates of death due to COVID-19. And uh, all of the ones that have not expanded Medicaid are in red. Now, you may be looking at that list there and saying, but Caleb, there's not any on that list that are in red. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. All of the top 10 states with the highest death rates of COVID-19, not a single one of them have failed to expand Medicaid. All of them have. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Louisiana, Michigan, Rhode Island, uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Illinois, all of them have expanded Medicaid. So if expanding Medicaid is the key to lowering your death rate of of COVID-19. Obviously, it ain't working for all of the states that have the absolute worst rates of that. And by the way, to even get to one that has expanded Medicaid, you have to get all the way down to number 14, Mississippi. And if you'll go ahead and and look at this next one, these are all the states that have the least amount of COVID-19 deaths. We'll look at the bottom 20 here. And again, every single one that has has expanded Medicaid or sorry, has not expanded Medicaid is going to be in red. Huh. Awful lot more red in that list. Oklahoma, South Carolina, Kansas, North Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Tennessee, and Wyoming. All of those states are in the bottom twenty, all of those states are in the twenty with the least amount of COVID nineteen deaths, and yet somehow None of them have expanded Medicaid. Now, I want you to keep in mind that there are only 13 states, only 13 that have not expanded Medicaid. The other 37 have. And you may notice that eight of those 13 are in the bottom 20. And if you dig a little bit deeper into this, that means that there are 61%, eight of the 13, that are in the bottom 20 that have not expanded Medicaid yet and the highest two that haven't expanded Medicaid, like I already said, Mississippi's one at 14th, Georgia at 15th. Those are the highest two. Every single other one in the bottom 25. And by the way, all 13 of them are below the national average. All of them. So if Medicaid is supposed to help us that's not showing up in the data anywhere. The idea that the reason that Alabama is having issues, and and we're, I think, 25th, 26th in overall death count because of this virus, the argument that Alabama needs to expand Medicaid to help us with the coronavirus pandemic, that was never going to fly. And John Archibald can make the case that the reason that we're having a hard time of it and the reason that we're getting hit by this thing, even though we're about middle of the pack, we're not being hit significantly harder than any other states. And, and when it comes to death rates, we're actually doing significantly better than all of our neighbors with the exception of Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, we're doing better than all of them. But the idea that expanding Medicaid is going to be some kind of magic bullet that, that helps with this thing. No, there's just no truth to that. All 10 of the top 10 have expanded Medicaid, eight out of the 13 that haven't are all in the bottom 20. I mean, this just absolutely destroys that narrative. But here's the thing. I don't think, I really don't think that these states are doing better because they haven't expanded Medicaid. I think that it has to do with a lot of different factors. I think, A, because they, they haven't spent as much on it. They, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with just environmental Because a lot of these states are southern states that have high rates of humidity, high rates of sunlight, which have slowed the transmission rate in a lot of these states. I think that has as much to do with it as anything. But ultimately, it does destroy that idea that Medicaid and expanding it would somehow help us with it. That's simply not true, and there's no way you can look at that data and believe that. Uh, But both of these narratives fall apart on their own because neither one are actually rooted in reality. Whether you're talking about this idea that Trump voters are the ones spreading it or you're talking about this idea that Medicaid is going to be the silver bullet or that uh, this thing is spreading through the minority communities because of racism. All of those talking points fall apart with just the slightest amount of criticism because they're basically wishful thinking. The left wants them to be true. Therefore, in their mind, they are true. They don't actually do any digging to find out whether or not those beliefs are actually based on anything other than their own feelings of what they should be. And that's really the, the underlying issue with all of that. Now, that being said, there is a prudent and, or sorry, there is a, a pressing, that's the better word, a pressing issue that I need to address with you. Right now, there is a petition out there And I am the one that created it to bring Whataburger to the river region. I don't care if it's here. I don't care if it's in Prattville or Wetumpka or Millbrook or heck, I I don't care if it's somewhere else outside of the Montgomery area, as long as it's close enough to drive there within 20 minutes. So if you want, head over to my Twitter page. You can look on my profile. It'll be one of the first tweets up there. You can do the same. And uh, the reason that I'm doing this now is because A, I've got a little extra time with everything that's been going on and being stuck in my apartment and B, Uh, I think that it would be a good thing to have a petition kind of rolling by the time things start picking up again. I've been trying to do this for a while. If you've been watching my show, you know that. Uh, Since I haven't been able to be all that successful in actually changing the landscape of Alabama politics, I figure the very least that I can do is bring delicious cheeseburgers to the River Region. Maybe that can be my legacy. I don't know. Uh, but, But be sure to head over to my page and look that up so that you can sign that if you do want to bring... 24-hour Whataburgers to the River Region. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, this one did happen a couple of days ago, but it was so good I couldn't pass it up. You know, we we don't really... Uh, we weren't really able to get to it yesterday because we have the shorter shows on Wednesday, but I, I just had to bring this one up. President Trump actually walked out of his press conference on Tuesday as a result of a really dumb question that was asked, and it was clearly antagonistic. It was clearly trying to get under his skin and, and poke at him, and it I guess it worked because he got so agitated that he actually walked out. So here's the clip of that. This is a question that was being asked of the president, by a journalist for CBS News, Weijia Zhang, I think is the way to say her name, Weijia Zhang. Anyway, so here it is. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. You said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes why does that matter why is this a global competition to you if every day americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day well they're losing their lives everywhere in the world and maybe that's a question you should ask china don't ask me ask china that question okay when you ask them that question you may get a very unusual answer yes behind you please Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question that's like that. That's not a nasty please question. Please go ahead. Why does it matter? Well, that's totally okay. Uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have, to, I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you go pointed here. to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, next, please. But you did You called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on Sorry, I just want the young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague finish, okay. but can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, please? thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And there he goes. He's walking right off. Well, there's a lot of good to unpack in that particular clip. First of all, it's an objectively stupid question. Why, why is this a global competition to you? Why are you comparing other countries to how we're doing on the testing? How else are you supposed to measure that? Like, I've been doing a lot of state-by-state comparisons. Do they assume that I hate everybody in Kentucky and Georgia and Tennessee and Florida and Texas? because I'm comparing how Alabama is doing to it? No, it's not a a competition for me. It's just, it's a pretty good gauge of seeing how well we're doing. So it's a really dumb question. And moreover, it's very obvious the reason that Trump saw fit to push forward with that talking point, the reason that he is comparing America to other countries and saying that we are doing better, which objectively we are, by leaps and bounds it's not even close, I mean, we've been outdoing people for about a month now on testing, and we're actually doing even better than that if you do it compared by population. So, I mean, we're just blowing everybody out of the water when it comes to testing. And the reason that Trump was showcasing that is because for weeks on end, all the media said is, we're not doing enough testing, we're not doing enough testing, South Korea is doing more testing than us, which was, you know true maybe in the first couple weeks of this thing but it hasn't been true since like the beginning of april but anyway so they it's actually been longer than that but they they kept pressing this talking point with the trump administration is failing and we're not doing as well in america because the other countries are just surpassing us testing even though it wasn't true trump was just laying that to rest and saying look we're destroying everybody else on testing it ain't even close And then they're the ones that were pushing for that. And they go, well, why is it a competition to you? You can't win with these idiots. You can't win with them because to them, it was always about destroying Trump. It was never about getting more testing. It was never about finding the truth. It was always about figuring out something to talk about that makes Trump look bad. That has been their goal from the start. It doesn't matter that Trump is obliterating everybody else on testing. And I shouldn't say Trump. It's America as a whole. His administration is helping with it, but it's really America as a whole when it comes to testing. But because they, they can't give him a win, they can't admit that America is doing anything better than any other country. I mean, the, the left has this mentality that America is the worst place in the world for some reason, uh, which is stupid because it's obviously the greatest country in human history because of that they have this mentality that they always have to bash america and then when trump shows them the stats and figures with an overwhelming tsunami of data that shows that we're out testing everybody else by leaps and bounds they go well why is it a competition to you you idiots are the ones that were upset about it you were the ones asking the questions i am reacting to you and you're the ones that have the gall to be like oh well why is this a competition to you there's still people dying what- Shut up. Frankly, I understand Trump's frustration on this. It's impossible to deal with these people that are constantly moving the standards that can't even come to admit when you do something right, even when they were the ones requesting it. They can't admit that the man does anything good, even when they were the one saying that, hey, Mr. President, you need to focus on this. This is something that's really important. And then he does, and I go, well, why, why are you making it a competition between everybody? You can't win with these people. You can't do it. And that's why he gets so frustrated with them. I will say, though, that it is also an objectively bad answer. That isn't the way that President Trump should have handled it. I'm not saying that his frustration was in any way unjustified, because... I mean, it makes me bleed from the eyes seeing this, too. I I get it. Trump was well within his right to be ticked off at them. But he didn't handle it in a great way because why, why don't you ask China? Well, the question was about why you're making a competition. I would have preferred him to go on a rant about how backwards the media is, actually kind of the way I just did. That probably would have been better, quite honestly. But he, he tried to deflect and make it about China, which isn't wrong. I mean, it is the freaking source of the virus. I don't think that they're really making it into a global competition. Uh, especially when you, I mean, they're the ones that started the fire in the house, I guess, to, to put it metaphorically. But it's a weird thing to, to say to ask China that question, because China's not really making it a competition. I don't know. So it wasn't the best way to handle it. But the other thing that is really funny about this is when he does talk about China, the reporter there acts as though it's very out of Trump's character to talk about China because they, they tried to make it because she's an Asian American. They, they tried to make it into some kind of racial thing that he was talking to her about China because she's of Asian descent. And what's really hilarious is that she doesn't even catch on to it. She doesn't even believe that it's somehow racist or it was somehow targeted at her because she's Asian. And you can tell if you watch the video, for those of you who were just listening on the radio, what happens is she actually sits down, she sits back, she is done with the question, she's prepared to just basically yield the floor to whichever the next reporter is. And then all of a sudden you can tell by the look on her face and by the way that she pops up real quickly that it dawns on her, wait a second, I'm Asian. I can use this to say that Trump was racist. I mean, you can just watch the gears turning in her head. That was it because it didn't even come off to her as a racial thing until all of a sudden she's like, "Wait a second, I can use this for ammo." Then you can see the eagerness with which she's like, "Why did you say that to me specifically?" Acting like Trump doesn't talk about China every ten freaking seconds. There's a reason that if you download one of the apps that has a you know like tr- different sound bites of Trump saying things, and and there's several of those like on app stores and whatever. That if there's ever a compilation of Trump saying things. One of the things that's always on there is him saying China 10,000 times. He's been doing that since really before he even started running. I mean, Trump was blaming everything on China even before 2015 when he announced his run. I remember listening to him on the morning on Fox and Friends talking about how China was screwing us, which, you know, wasn't wrong. But the point is, they act as though this is a new development and Trump goes, huh, Chinese person. I bet I can blame China on this. He's been blaming China for this thing since the beginning. He's been blaming them for basically everything else since before the pandemic started. So I love how you can just see that this lady doesn't even really register that it that it's racist herself until all of a sudden that the wheels start turning is like, wait a second, I'm Asian. I can use this against him. Oh, man, it was just funny. But the sad thing about this is because let's talk about the real victim here. And I'm not just saying this because she's an Alabama native, even though she is. And and I actually um, I've never met Caitlin Collins, but we've kind of run in the same circles. Alabama native Caitlin Collins, who works for CNN, had a question. And you kind of feel for her because she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't ask a dumb question. She just happened to follow the person that did and Trump was ticked off. And so he's like, you there, no, no, you know what? Screw you, I don't, I don't wanna talk to you. I actually feel kind of bad for Caitlyn. <laughs> she didn't do anything wrong. But anyway, there you have it. Uh, I do, you know, shout out to to an Alabama native there. But if you need any further proof that this journalist was clearly trying to antagonize the president by asking the stupid competition, question. Here was a tweet from her and I just I just started following her because of this thing and this was one of her tweets earlier. Remember she is a White House correspondent so she kind of follows the president around. This was one of her tweets uh there it goes. Okay. Yeah so this is a tweet from CBS News's Weiji uh Weiji and in it she says currently traveling with the president as he delivers remarks to workers at the PPE distribution facility in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The Trump team playlist was blaring before he started speaking, including "Macho Man" and "Billy Jean," and he criticizes the press back there. I- I don't, I don't get it. I really don't. Like, why are you picking on the man's playlist, especially with Macho Man and Billy Jean? Like, those are actually pretty good songs. I, I want to kind of give props to Trump for that. Uh, putting in the Village People and, and Michael Jackson. I mean, that that's about as as good as it gets right there. That's, I, I, I could listen to that myself. But I mean, it just does go to prove that she's just hating on him because she doesn't like the guy. And trying to play gotcha with that question, which first of all, didn't work, and second of all, was just dumb. You could actually put in an alternate headline, although it would not fit the left's agenda, that uh, Trump's pre-speech playlist includes gay artists and black musical artists. (laughs) You know, village people and Michael Jackson. But anyway. But ultimately what this boils down to is, you know that the media, they're not after truth. They're not after getting to the answers. They're also not after the country doing well or being, you know, good at coronavirus. It doesn't matter how other countries do that. They're not. They're not even for getting, like you can tell from this, more testing and more data out there. Ultimately, their goal is political. They don't like Trump. They want him out of office, and they're going to do everything they can to try to jab at him. To them, it's not about journalism. It's not about the truth. It's about a political agenda. And this is one of the most clear cut cases of it that I've seen since Trump's presidency. And that's saying a lot, considering all we've been through with the media. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplains' report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Today's Chaplain's Report, we are going to be continuing our series in Samuel And in 1 Samuel 10, 25 through 27, you may recall from our previous installments that what's going on here is Saul has basically just been anointed and crowned king. They've made it public. All of Israel now knows this. And this particular passage of scripture is interesting because it deals with the reaction to it. Because if you remember the lead up to this and and the passages of scripture we've already gone through, for the longest time, Israel didn't have a king. First, they had Moses, and when they went into the promised land under Joshua, they established a system of judges. So you had people that made judgments on things where you had a dispute with your neighbors, but as far as having an actual ruler or a king or any kind of real government structure, Israel didn't really do that. Their governing structure was the law and the priest and the judges and the commandments that Moses gave them. They didn't really have all that formal a governing structure. And so... Throughout all of that time, Israel keeps begging God, hey, give us a king, make us like every other nation. And God, for a very long time, hundreds of years even, goes, no, I'm not going to do that. No, it's a bad idea. Trust me, you don't need a human on earth being your king. It's going to end badly. And finally, they've pestered him long enough that God's like, fine, that's what you want, that's what I'm going to give you, here's your king. And that, of course, takes uh, takes place in the form of, of King Saul, and this is the reaction to that. You'll see in 1 Samuel 10, verses 25 through 27, Then Samuel told the people that the ordinances of the kingdom, and wrote them in a book and placed them before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house in Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any presents, but he kept silent. Well, that's really interesting. In this particular passage, I I do find my initial gut reaction is to some degree somewhat similar to what we were just talking about in the whole thing where the media was asking Trump to do one thing, he did that exact thing, and then they were upset at him for doing so. It's kind of the same thing here. It's a lesson in human nature, which hasn't changed that much in the past 3,000, 4,000 years. You can't please people. Even when you do what people ask, even when people beg for something and harp on it, and they needlessly talk about it, and then you give it to them, there's still going to be people that are upset with you for even doing that. I mean, we should know this from earlier in the Old Testament. Remember how Israel had been crying out for nearly 400 years of bondage to have, to have themselves brought out of Egypt and be delivered? And when God finally did that and brought them out of Egypt, they fussed, they complained, they moaned, they naysayed. Like, you can't please those people. There's always going to be people that are malcontents in the crowd. But before we even get to them, I do find it really interesting, the last part of verse 26 there, where when Saul went to his house, there were men whose hearts God had touched. So I don't think that this was, and we actually discussed this just a couple days ago, God having some kind of supernatural control over humans and basically making them automatons that previously were not going to obey him and then all of a sudden wanted to obey him because God did something to them. It's more like these were the people that already had an open mind and an open heart, and God just assisted with that process. So they already had an open mind and open heart, and then God kind of helped them along the right path because they had a willingness to find that path, so he helps them walk it doesn't do it for him he doesn't make them want to walk the path it's just when he sees a desire there he works on it he develops it and he helps them in the process of doing so and that seems to be what's going on here but it does sort of give us an idea of and and help remind us that God is going to help us in that process, too. When he puts something forward that he wants us to do, when there is somebody that he wants us to, to follow, that God aids in that process, as long as we have the right frame of mind and heart. But it does go back to this idea that that doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody's going to be willing to follow, and God could have theoretically just overridden these naysayers' free will and make them want to follow Saul, but he didn't do that. This passage of Scripture is showing a very clear contrast. The people whom God is with and whom he is not. Not because of some kind of pre-existing condition to where God decided ahead of time that he's going to predestine certain people to obey him and predestine certain people not to. He gave everybody the opportunity to do so. Some people took him up on that offer, and some people chose not to. But you just can't please everybody, even when you capitulate to the very thing that that they were asking you to do. And I think it's really funny. It's a little bit of commentary that the writer of Samuel is giving here, where he says that the the Bible describes them as the worthless men. The worthless men who brought him no presents, and uh, um, they they basically just dissed him in doing this. So the whether it was the, the head of a tribe or an elder or somebody that was a bigwig within their own individual part of Israel— those were the people that did not pay him homage and and did not acknowledge him as king, basically. So I find that really interesting that these are the people that doubted Saul. But it wasn't really so much that they were doubting Saul, was it? They were saying, how can this one person deliver us? Hasn't one person delivered Israel in the past? Wasn't it Moses that delivered people in the time of Egypt and, and the captivity? Wasn't it... Uh, Looking back, hasn't it been individuals that God called upon, whether you're talking about the different judges with Deborah, with Samson, uh, with Gideon? And yet they're looking at this guy and going, how can one man make a difference in this fight? Here's what's actually going on here. These people had already basically made up their mind that they didn't want to follow Saul, that this thing wasn't going to work out. And ultimately, they weren't just doubting Saul, they were doubting God if God says, hey, I'm going to deliver you from the Philistines and this is the guy I'm going to use to do it, and you go, one man can't do that, you're not really doubting the person, you're doubting God. Because do you think Moses could have delivered Egypt from Pharaoh by himself? Heck no. And Moses knows that. Moses wrote about that frequently. But with God, it's possible. That's the same way it is today. When you're doubting whether or not a person is capable, for example, of salvation and becoming a Christian, well, on their own, yeah, of course they can't. But doubting that is not doubting them, it's doubting God, doubting His power to save, doubting His grace, doubting His goodness, doubting His mercy. And that's a trap that we don't need to find ourselves falling into. Just like these men, they should have trusted that if God said He's going to deliver, Israel by Saul, then he's absolutely going to do it. They were really doubting God and his ability to do what he said he was going to do. And I think that it's funny, and it also provides a little commentary here, that it calls them the worthless men, not just because they were naysayers and, and it's kind of throwing shade on them. More importantly, it's because what had they done to deliver Israel? They're basically sitting back in their chairs. Oh, yeah, like one guy's going to actually do anything to deliver Israel. The obvious rebuttal to that is, well, then maybe you should help him. Why aren't you doing something to deliver Israel? You've been here this whole time. You've been an influential person in your tribe or in Israel. Why haven't you delivered Israel? It's real easy to be a critic when you don't really have to own up to it. It's really easy to be a critic and not actually do anything to solve it yourself. It becomes much harder to become a critic when you've tried to do the very thing you're being critical of other people on because you realize how difficult it actually is. And I actually really love Saul's reaction. Again, early Saul is actually a really interesting person and and somebody that really does have a heart for God and, and does a lot of the right things. Obviously, later he devolves into a villain, but early Saul is somebody to be admired. And in this particular episode, Saul's reaction is, he kept silent. He wasn't ignorant of them. He knew they were there. He knew what they were saying. He had heard. And as the new king, he had the power to not only deride them for that, he could have picked them up and called them insurrectionists and killed them theoretically if he had wanted to. But he didn't. He just let them talk. It's... Very reminiscent of something that Thomas Jefferson used to do. You see, Thomas Jefferson had a policy that is very unlike politicians of today, very uh, unlike Trump, for example, where if people delivered any kind of personal attack against him, he wouldn't talk about it. Now, if they wanted to debate him on ideas, liberty, how government should work, that kind of thing, oh, you better believe he'd give you the fight of your life. But if you wanted to attack him personally, he just wouldn't say anything about it. There were people during his administration that even were accusing him of sleeping with one of his slaves, a rumor that actually wound up cropping up again in the 1990s amid the Clinton scandal, but, you know, not to get in uh, off into the weeds on that, even something as salacious and vitriolic as that, Thomas Jefferson never addressed it. Because he said, and, and he was asked about this, he said, eventually... History will find that stuff out. Eventually, people are going to find out the truth. And it doesn't make any sense to get caught up in a bunch of those useless, frivolous arguments to defend your own character. I'd call that humility. I'd call that meekness. That's a pretty good policy for anybody, actually. I mean, when you talk about somebody that's lobbying a personal insult to you, and that person has the the wherewithal and fortitude and confidence in themselves, and in Jefferson and Saul's case, confidence in God, that they can just sit back and go, ah, whatever. They say what they want. You see, that's somebody that does, unlike the worthless men, have faith that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. Because Saul knew at this point that God was with him. And if God's with you, do you really need anybody else's support? Do you really need anybody else to approve of what you're doing if you know you're on God's side? The answer is no. Saul knew that. Jefferson knew that. And I hope that we know that. That as long as God is on our side, we don't really need everybody's approval. And the fact that there are going to be some naysayers that don't like us or are going to chastise us about it, that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Just like Thomas Jefferson and just like Saul, you know, that'll go by the wayside. The more important thing is to make sure that you're on God's side, not that everybody else is on yours. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.